Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. When it comes to your finances, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, and you've invested all that you can. Now it's time to take those investments to the next level by using the brand behind every great investor, Yahoo Finance. As America's number one finance destination, Yahoo Finance has everything you need, whether you're a seasoned trader or just dipping your toes into the market. Join the millions of investors who trust Yahoo Finance to guide them on their financial journey. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. This is the Cork Today replay on C103. Welcoming you along to the programme today, John Paul, taking your calls at 1850-333-103. Let me remind you that we do have a competition that's running every day this uh, week. We're giving listeners the chance on a daily basis to win a family pass to go along to the Everyman for their favourite traditional pantomime which this year is at Cinderella. It is running in the Everyman from December the 1st but we have tickets to a very special production on December the 13th. The reason it's so special is that the actual panto will kick off at the normal time of half past seven but we're having a VIP reception at the Everyman at six o'clock for all of our winners and there'll be face painters and musicians and they'll be giving out chocolates to the kids and there'll be lots lots more and that's not all. Our prize today includes a voucher for 50 euro for the family to go along to Son of a Bun on McCurtain Street in uh, Cork to enjoy the best burger in uh, Ireland. We will give you a clue to call later on on the programme which will contain a very simple pantomime question. If you know the answer we'll open the phone lines and your chance to win. So that's your chance to win. Family Pass to Cinderella at the Everyman and you can check out more about the pantomime at the everymancork.com. Busy programme to get through uh, today. Later on, we're going to be talking about begging on the streets of Cork City and in particular organised begging on the streets of Cork City because according to Owen English in the Examiner today, the Gardaí have deployed additional resources to try to target what's been described as suspected organised begging and it's following a visible increase in activity on the streets in recent days. Uh, and I know yesterday we were talking about the wonderful switching on of the lights in Cork City and many of our listeners were telling us what a lovely evening out it was and how they enjoyed it and how festive the city felt and it was lovely to see the lights uh, up. And I'm wondering if people have been doing shopping in the city or living in the city, have you noticed an increase in the number of people begging on the streets of uh, late? Now the Gardaí are doing their best in that 144 arrests have been made for begging in the city since the start of this year and that is up on uh, last year. But it seems with the significant increase in the number of people involved or there seems to be a significant increase in the number of people involved and it's what's been described as organised begging. These are people who are making a lot of money out of this begging and they go to great effort to organise 
what is almost a job at this stage. For example, blankets and cardboard sheets are placed in various shop doorways, particularly on Patrick Street, and they bring them out. They send somebody out with a van early in the morning. And the reason for that, it's to guarantee what's been described as the prime begging locations. So there seems to be a code amongst themselves, amongst these organised beggars, that if your if your cardboard and your sleeping bag arrives in a doorway, then move on, honey, because that's my spot uh, for the day. So it is very, very organised. We're not the only ones here in Cork to have this organised begging. I know uh, last week, for example, in Dublin, Gardaí arrested dozens of people. They did a three-day operation targeting the organised begging. But I know whenever I've looked into this about people being arrested, they're in and out through the courts fairly quickly. They're fined and they're gone again. And because it's organised and because there's people involved in organising it and a lot of money is made in it, they simply pay the fine and then the person's back out on the street again or else is moved maybe to a different city where they're, you know, they're not going to be known and it wasn't, you know, no one's going to realise that they were arrested uh, last week. So it is pretty organised and it is it is most of the people who are detained are from Eastern Europe. So the people coming into this country they see us as easy picking because we are a generous bunch of people. And of course it goes back to the fact that they were, they're only doing it because they're making money out of it. So if people stop giving money to these organised beggars they won't make any money out of it and they'll soon cop on that you know and move on and realise that they're not going to be able to make a living or a livelihood out of begging on the streets. Now, so we want to open the phone lines and get your thoughts and comments on that. How do you feel about people begging on the streets? Do you give them money, uh, for example? Do you find it hard to walk by somebody that's begging? They have a tendency, they, certainly the Eastern European beggars, it's women and there'll be children around as well. And it's, it can be very difficult if somebody's looking at you and they're, they're looking cold and hungry. I mean, a day like today, while I've been talking about the lovely winter sunshine that's out there, it is still a cold day if you were to walk by while you're all wrapped up in your hat, scarf and gloves and your warm coat on your, and you're to walk by somebody who's looking cold, who's saying, you know, any change, please? And can you, can you spare a few bob and holding out an empty coffee cup or whatever ever it is? Do you are you, you know, do you sort of feel, oh, God, you know, there before the grace of God go why do you give them money are we doing wrong by giving money I know certainly a number of years ago we would have talked with various organisations when there was a lot of children begging on the streets I remember the ISPCC came out very strongly against it and saying absolutely do not give money if you feel the pang of uh, guilt about these people it was suggested go away and buy them a sandwich uh, I mean I know I spoke I spoke about the story that happened to me a number of years ago it wasn't in the city it was actually in, in Mallow Town passing a young child who was sitting on a piece of cardboard on a bitterly cold wet day in the run up to Christmas this was many years ago and was begging it was an an Eastern European child and I just felt awful walking by this child so I went and I bought her a a hat scarf and gloves you know those hat scarf and glove sets that come out for Christmas it was the time that Dunn Stores had a shop on Main Street uh, in Mallow and I went in and I bought that and then there's a McDonald's close by so I went in there and and, and I bought her a burger and and a hot chocolate and I went over with it and I I gave her the burger uh, which in fairness uh, she ate straight away and then I was taking out the hat scarf and gloves and she said will you leave the tag on and can I have the receipt and I said no you can't so I I took the tag off took the receipt away with me and I said put the hat scarf and gloves uh, on you and then I walked away and when I looked back I saw a man approach her there obviously been a man lurking in the shadows and and obviously he was 
trying to get the hat scarf and glove to return and, and get the, the money back and I still don't know if I did the right or the wrong thing but I just felt so it was just it was a freezing cold day I was wet and miserable and when I saw this child sitting there she couldn't be more than 10 it just it got it it, it pulled up my heartstrings I have to say but I didn't give cash I didn't give cash because I had done an interview fairly in the weeks I think previous to that and it was the ISPC the ISPCC who said under no circumstances give money so anyway but it's that whole thing of we the Irish are generous Uh, we're more than generous whenever there is catastrophes around the world we think of things like live aid per head of population we give more than any other nation when any of those big fundraising events uh, happen so they play on that I mean, and these or, and what, what annoys me is when it's organised begging and when there, uh, there are people making a lot of money out of this and it's not the person sitting down doing the begging it's the, it's the people higher up the chain and it galls me to think that any money I would hand over would end up in, in, in some cases it can be the hands of uh, uh, criminals. So we all need to stop and think about when we are donating and want to give money, who we actually give it to and how we actually donate it. So your thoughts on people begging on the streets. Are you intimidated by them? And is that one of the reasons that people hand over cash to them? It's not, I mean, obviously it's because you in some way feel sorry for them, but do you feel so intimidated that you feel the only way you can walk by them is to actually give them cash? Your thoughts welcomed on that and we will discuss it a little bit later on in the programme as to what Cork City can do about this illegal begging. I know uh, we spoke earlier in the year with Councillor Ken O'Flynn and he was writing to the Romanian ambassador in Ireland because the belief was that the majority of the begging that was going on in Cork City was being done by Roma gypsies and he wanted to see could did the Romanian embassy and the Romanian government and officials was there anything they could do to stop the Roma gypsies from begging on, in particular Ken was talking about the streets of Cork but obviously begging here in uh, Ireland so we'll catch up on that story as well later on Also on the programme this morning we'll be talking about homeless people and our own homeless uh, homeless people, Alice Leahy is going to join us, Alice Leahy has been working, Nurse Alice is what she's affectionately known by, by homeless people in Dublin, she has been working Since the 60s, certainly into the 70s, she has been working with homeless people on the streets of Dublin. She left a very rural part of Tipperary to go to Dublin to train as a nurse, leaving, you know, the idyllic setting of South Tipperary to go up to the big smoke in Dublin. And that in itself was a culture shock. And she writes about all of that in a wonderful, wonderful memoir called The Stars Are Our Only Warmth. And her humanity to homeless people is just incredible. It's, and it shines out of this book. The way she talks about washing the feet of homeless people and tending and treating the feet of homeless people because so many things can go wrong when they get infections in their feet and if they don't look after their feet. And if you're walking around in cold, wet weather and you're leaving the cold, wet boots or shoes or whatever you have on you, all kinds of foot complaints um, happen. And as a nurse, she does her best to help homeless people. But she talks throughout the book about, you know, working with uh, and and bathing their, their feet. And there's just 
there's something almost biblical, isn't there? I think it's about the washing of the feet. I think it all goes back to Jesus and the washing of the feet and, and, and just all of that. And it's just, there's something very human. It's a very human thing to do. And, you know, she describes in the book about taking off the shoes and socks off a homeless person and the smell is like something that none of us, I think, would will uh, have ever experienced in our lives or will ever experience and it's only somebody working at that cold face of uh, homelessness will know and be able to talk about and describe that smell uh, anyway we speak with Alice on the bo- on the programme today about her memoir because it's it's a beautiful book if, if you are to go out and buy one book this year I suggest you go out and buy Alice Leahy's a book and, and you'll be doing a good deed as well because when I got to the end of the book I realised that all the proceeds in the book is going to the Alice Leahy Trust that uh, she set up so we'll speak with Alice uh, later on a, prog- a problem with accessing home helps now that's an issue that often comes up on the programme we would hear from family members who are desperate to get additional home help hours we'll hear from family members who have home help hours and then discovered it's been cut they might have had five hours a week it was cut to three hours we heard of other people who had an hour a day cut to a half an hour we hear of home helps themselves saying how difficult it is for them to get in and get out get all the jobs done in the half an hour and I think the one the one thing that I always bemoan when the hour goes to the half an hour while yes they, the home help might be able to go in and do whatever needs to be done for the elderly person but they have no time to be with the elderly person that they're looking after and for a lot of people a lot of housebound elderly people who are entitled to home care packages and who are entitled to home helps calling it can be the only human contact they will have for the day and then they'll wait until the home help runs in the next day again and if they've got to do it in the half an hour that half an hour while yeah the home help might have been been not physically doing anything but they were spending time with the person and there's no amount of money that you can say could be saved by taking that time away. What, what does it mean for that elderly person not to have that human contact, human conversation, just to catch up with the day and what's going on and uh, any news from the neighbourhood, any news from the area, if it's a, if it's a rural person. And, and that's, I always thought... Uh, that always, to me, was a great sadness about the about the home help hours being reduced from a half an hour from an hour to a half an hour. Anyway, we're going to discuss that, uh, and also we're going to catch up on the cataract bus, which goes up and from West Cork, and uh, has been going to Belfast now. It's um, over a year now, isn't it, since they've been regularly running these cataract buses and bringing it closer to home. Could we have a service like what they're doing in Belfast? Could we have it at Bantry General Hospital? At the end of the day, the HSC are not saving any money because they have to reimburse the people that go on the cataract bus. Could that money be better used by opening up some kind of a cataract centre and a cataract unit at a hospital like Bantry Hospital or Mallow Hospital, one of the smaller hospitals that have the facilities uh, to do it. And, we, and obviously they have the capacity because they're day procedures. So it's not that they need extra beds. People are in and out. It's a 20 minute procedure at the end of the day. So we're going to look at that. A listener will update us on... Um, a brain surgery that she needed in Beaumont Hospital it was to remove a tumour. Unfortunately, the surgery was unsuccessful. So she's going to update us on where she is at the moment. Um, we have a choir looking for people who cannot sing. This will certainly lighten the mood today. This made me smile when I saw it. If you're one of those people that love to belt out a song 
completely on your own and you have to do it on your own because, you know, you know you're tone deaf. You can't hit that big note any longer or maybe you never could hit that big note but you like the idea of being able to warble a tune and you like the idea of getting together maybe with a choir maybe with a choir and singing a song we have two events happening in Cork where they're looking for people who can't sing I'll tell you more about that and then Joe Heffernan joins us we've been talking about suicide bereavement following a suicide over the last number of weeks and today we're going to look at how do you deal with a child how do you explain to a child that they've lost a loved one through uh, suicide. If you've got a question or looking for particular advice, uh, Joe Heffernan will be available later on. So that and more on the programme between now and one. And as always, your thoughts and comments welcome. This is the Court Today replay on C103. On begging, Willie from Middleton said it is impossible to shop in the town of Middleton without somebody shoving a cup in your face. Uh, begging uh, happens there on a daily basis, so it isn't just a city centre issue. Um, Willie says you'll see it outside Tesco, Little Aldi, and it is Romanians, according to Willie. And when they're asked to move on, what do they do? They simply just move up the road and beg somewhere else. Uh, Nolan Killeens says it is known in Boston as panhandling and it's it's totally illegal in Boston. Uh, Noel says I don't know why begging is allowed to take place here on the streets of Cork. I have seen it not only in the city but in other areas in the county. This is a form of robbery according to Noel begging is a form of robbery. We spoke with, thank you for that, we spoke with the Society of Vincent de Paul yesterday, Brenton Dempsey, who was kind of doing a general overview about how busy they've been across Cork City and County for the last year and obviously encouraging people if you can help out in any way uh, V2P please do because obviously this is a very busy time of the year whether well, the Society of Vincent de Paul in Banding because obviously each area runs its own conference and then they uh, they look after people in their own area so St Vincent de Paul in Banding have been on to say that anybody who is in need of help from Society of Vincent de Paul in the Bandon area that applications can now be submitted in Bandon and they're asking people please to submit your application before December the 8th obviously then so they can organise help for all of the various people and you do you can get your application in to the Vincent de Paul office on Weir Street in Bandon okay that's for people in the Bandon area in need of help this year from the Society of St Vincent de Paul and just finish up on something we mentioned yesterday when we had a call in from a listener who was hanging the washing up on the line and got a bit of a fright because a plane went overhead that she said was very low flying and then turned around and looked like it was going back towards a limerick. She thought it was some kind of a commercial jet was how she described it. Anyway we looked into it. A lot of people straight away said that's a, that's a geology survey that's going on, an ordnance survey that's going on by plane and airborne survey. Uh, that's what everybody was saying it was so we looked into it and we got onto the company that runs the airborne survey. It's a geological survey that's underway over Munster at the moment and they are flying over areas of West and North or they were flying over areas of West and North Cork yesterday and yes they confirmed they were over the Ballyhay Charleville area which is where our listener spotted it. Keep a lookout for them because they're, uh, they're out and they're flying over West and North Cork over the next couple of days and the plane is low flying in order for them to pick, get the information that they are gathering. The word survey is 
written in bold black writing on the side of the plane and it is a red and white plane and it flies low so it is, it's quite easy to see but if you take a good look at it you should be able to see the word uh, survey. So that's for that plane. That's what that was about yesterday. Last week we discussed the lack of options on home care and step down facilities that's leading to an increased number of delayed discharges at all of our acute hospitals. West Cork Dáil Deputy Michael Collins says that home helps are available to take up the work and he joins me to talk about uh, this issue in more detail. Good morning to you Michael. Good morning. Um, You're welcome. So when families are told that there are no home helps available, you're hearing the exact opposite. Well you see uh, in the doll, this question comes up uh, regularly, especially I'd say in the last uh, two or three months, uh, maybe two, three times a week, people, uh, TDs are asking questions. The same answer is coming through the whole time that they can find new home helps to take uh, to take up duty, basically to look after the elderly. This is completely misleading, and this is what I, I leaders questioned the other day. Uh, this is what I said to them: it is absolutely misleading and unfair, uh, and, and it's actually degrading to the women that are out there uh, providing an excellent service. Because any of the people that I've spoken to, I asked the tarnished athlete those questions. I asked him, has he spoken to an elderly person recently that needed the service, that couldn't get it? Had he spoken to uh, the, the, the ladies mainly who provide the service and are and, and willing to uh, provide an extra service but won't be given the hours? Has he spoken to them and bought answers he didn't answer me on? Because the facts are, if he was being honest, he hasn't. I have been speaking to the uh, home health ladies in particular in West Cork and they have told me time and time again that they're quite willing to take extra hours but won't be given them and some of them are going home with very very poor and very small number of hours and you have a situation then where you have an elderly person requiring obviously a seven day week service uh, won't be they be lucky to get a five-day week service. They certainly won't be getting Saturday and Sunday. And the whole thing is that these people will take up the hours if they're given the hours. And I asked Donish to the last day in the doll, um, and he, he had his opportunity to reply to me, and I asked him twice, would they carry out a survey where every home health person, let it be male or female, um, would be asked, what hours are they doing and are they willing to do more hours? He didn't answer me because he knows the answer because I know the answer already. They're willing to do double and triple what they're doing but they're not giving the hours in the first place. Is it, a fu- is it a funding issue with the HSC? It's the problem is, and, and uh, there was a question earlier in the week through a different TD, and I was in the doll listening to the answer, and the answer the Taoiseach said is that we're pumping millions of euros extra into the home health service and basically we're now going to have to review where the money is going. To me, and I said that in my question the last day, the money is not getting to where it is, and that's the people on the ground, both to the worker and and to the to the person who needs the home health service. And time and time again, and we've warned the face from talking about this. It's just been badly and poorly managed, and there must be mo- there must be money in the middle, millions and millions of euros hanging out there in the middle where people, uh, but as I said, not getting to where it should be getting, and that's to the, the person that's alone. Well, I saw I saw a piece from the company Home Instead, and Home Instead are one of the companies which is contracted by the HSC to uh, to. Uh, to recruit home helps. They say they have a problem recruiting carers because the HSC is not prepared to give them genuine shifts. So they're almost backing up what you're saying. I mean, Home Instead said it's more lucrative to go work in a supermarket than it is to work as a home help. It is, it is. And as I said, you know, in, in my speech last day, that the women that carry out this work are the most unrecognised heroes of our time. And, and if there was an inquiry into the way they've been treated, it would be, you know, we hear a lot of inquiries done through the years, it would, it would reveal the reality of the ground here. It's, 
the HSE are not able to roll out the service correctly. There is millions, there's no doubt about it, the Taoiseach, if that case correct, there's millions being pumped into it, but it's not getting to where it should be getting. And there do need to be an inquiry as to why this is not happening. And in, uh, what's happening here is that a lot of people are getting despondent, a lot of the home health after spending years and years, because you, as well as I do, know, Patricia, a lot of these people do a lot of hours behind the scenes yeah. no one ever sees. Absolutely. And this thing of working, this thing of a home help going in who had been going in to visit an elderly person for an hour a day and it got reduced to a half an hour, I think is just utterly shameful. And the biggest thing is, you know, a person that's very ill and many of them are not being able to get a service on Saturday and Sunday. And every excuse from um, uh, district nurses to the to the patient saying we can't find people. I'm sorry, that's a HSE um, uh, statement as such. That's 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 disingenuous, and it's totally and utterly, I said above the dawn, misleading. The hours are there; they're not being given to the people that want to carry out the work and want to care for the person. And in the long long term, we're looking at saving a lot of money to the state if that was carried out. But unfortunately, for some reason, it's not being run properly or run efficiently, and millions are being lost. And I'd like to know where the millions are being lost, but if, while we while we await these reviews, they're talking about this now for three years, I'm in the doll nearly. Three years now we're waiting for uh, reviews when in the programme for government we were promised at the table that a seven day week service would be delivered. It hasn't been delivered. Oh, and maybe in some places you might be looking, you might get a start every two weeks or whatever. I, I have people ringing me you know, time and time again asking me why we can't get the service and one or else we're getting a service but it's very, very poor and that elderly person is, is unable to either stay at home, has to end up in a nursing home or a hospital there's a whole plethora of issues here that needs to be dealt with and there's been there's been an increase and we've been discussing it on the programme over the last couple of weeks there's been an increase in the number of delayed discharges in our acute hospitals can you understand why some families are refusing to take a loved one home because they don't have an adequate home care package absolutely Um, there's there's a lot of situations uh, at the moment where people are in uh, you know in the hospital for various reasons they may may have fallen need to get home and families are saying okay put in place uh, package we have a situation too where a lot of families have had loved ones um, not being taken into community hospitals because there's no uh, beds available even though there's questions have now arisen recently that beds are available there's a lot of questions out here as to the way things are being ran and I think it's time now that reality and honesty came through here and stop misleading people and stop like these are people that are you know trying to care for their loved one themselves a lot of people spend you know 12, 14, 16 hours caring for a loved one that we don't see that every day mm. and they may need they may, may need a little bit of extra time here to help them and it's not being forthcoming and you know I, I mean I, I, I could name um, umpteen amount of stories and, and reality situations um, down through the years where people have been left basically on their own it's very very poor and a state that's talking about you know it's, it's, it's getting back on its feet it's back on its feet it has surely left the elderly well behind and uh, I'm always very conscious when we talk about it because this is very much a hidden problem because a lot of these people are housebound and are just not able to get out of their homes uh, the ones that are lucky to have loved ones looking after them are stretched to the pin of their collar but it's a hidden issue they're, they're not people that can't get out in the streets and protest their carers can't get out in the streets and protest because there's no one to look after their loved one and yes and the carers again you know and this is another issue that and I did touch on it in my questions the last day waiting six months for a carers allowance you know there's a whole pattern of issues there that need to need to be looked at and haven't been looked at but basically the home help and I keep 
saying they're women because they are women, and there's no, very, very few women in, involved, have been terribly, terribly mistreated down through the years, and they feel it. They feel it on the ground, and it's unfair to be listening to time time again from minister to minister getting up saying we'd love to roll out a great service of home help to the people but we can find the, the, the people to do it and first of all there is new people coming on but secondly uh, the existing people are getting meagre hours and they're, they're looking for an increased number of hours obviously to make it payable for them to carry out their work and they're being refused them and, there's cont- and the patient on the ground has been refused the hours so there's a complete uh, it's, it's, be, everybody's been misled in this issue and no honesty on it, and, and honesty sometimes might, might hurt, but it's honesty, at least you know where you stand, and this issue, um, I, I continuously say that in my speech of the day, the people are being misled, and it's, it's unfair, and I know that the workers out there are very hurt, and very, you know, there's a despondency out there, and it just, the, one lady summed it all up to me during the presidential election, she said, we're not, the home help's not going out to vote for the presidential election, I kind of was bemused, why? Because the political system, has let us down time and time again over the last number of years and no home help would vote for a president because of the political system. And, you know, it might have been a funny way to take out their anger, but I could see where I could see where they were coming. And okay. I've spoken, as I said, time and time again to different uh, women and their, their general frustration right throughout West Carcass, not just any particular area. OK, well, uh, well, well done. I keep flying the flag for the, for the home helps. Uh, but yeah. just on a different issue, you're just back from uh, a trip to Belfast with what we've... Um, lovingly called the cataract boss but is it true you're now taking people with knee and hip operations? Yeah, this this is why I, I travelled myself this weekend uh, to Belfast because number one I needed to meet with Mark Regan um, uh, the CEO of, of, of Kingsbridge Private Hospital so because need, we need further clinic time because we're inundated with calls with, for, uh, I, it could well be the situation that people are worried about the Brexit and that they're you know wanting to, um, to to make sure things are done before that or it's just maybe that there's a need out there um, but the, the, I'm looking for more uh, clinic time for, for cataracts but we also this, this weekend for the first time we we have it coupled in with um, with our visit to Kingsbridge uh, for the 14 cataract operations we had 10 hip and knee consultations as well uh, so we had a packed clinic um, uh, for the weekend from, from mainly from West Cork and, and, and parts of Kerry and Cork City as well but um, it's, it's a new uh, juncture we've come to that we're now able to take people on the day in fairness to Kingsbridge they've worked very closely with us so if we're up there on a Saturday Sunday they're going to do consultations for people as well for other procedures so there's a there's a full clinic um, in, in, in Kingsbridge which has worked, worked out very well look I mean we have people down here in the south waiting for procedures. They're suffering, uh, seriously suffering in pain, and this is this is a way out. I had a, uh, a person come to me Friday at twelve o'clock. They were in in Kingsbridge on Saturday getting their consultation. They didn't know when they'd get it down here south, and they certainly didn't know when the operation take place. No, they're all going well. They have an operation lined up in January for a hip operation, young person. So that's the and how how will how I mean obviously a hip or a knee operation is a much bigger procedure than the 20-minute cataract operation. How is that going to work? They're, are, they're going to have to stay in for a few days, are they? they will, you see, what we're doing is we won't be able to t- provide a transport service for them to go for the operation okay. with, with, with hip and knee. But we will uh, provide, uh, while the cataract uh, uh, operations are taking place, we will pr- be able to provide a service to take them up for the consultation. Right. So I think when the door is open, there's a very good, procedure above there like they, they, they make sure that the, if, if somebody goes up for the hip that there's a loved one with them they, they book them in the local hotel at a very reasonable rate so there's a whole platter of work going on up there uh, that's, that's extremely you know it's extremely successful and it's proven because in 2014 there was only seven cross-border procedures 
Uh, from January to August this year, there's 2,700 already. And, we, you know, I, I, I got a text myself when I was in Belfast saying that in the Irish, the Minister Harris was, was, was up saying that we're cutting down the numbers in, 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 of waiting lists for the Catholic procedures. And uh, I knew why, because most of them are gone to Belfast and we're taking, and you know, we've hundreds taken out to date. We have bus 18 going up next Friday week. Um, uh, this Friday week, and and you know I'm looking for more cleaning times. That's where it is, and that's and where these, are going. you know, these are all, especially the cataract and the knee and hip front in the main. These are elderly people. You got to be really desperate to get on a bus uh, to go to Belfast. But that's just the way. That's just the way the people find themselves in. It's You've come up with that. With I think what is a pretty reasonable solution, uh, Michael. Open up Bantry Hospital, ideally located to provide a dedicated cataract treatment centre. Yes, indeed, and and you know there's there's dogs. You know, Bantry is a, is a hospital of excellence, and I have no doubt about saying that. Saying because I'm down from that area myself, I know the Mellow General Hospital will be the same. I think it's 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 an ideal opportunity for them to do this, and it's an ideal opportunity for the minister to prove that this he wants to cut to cut the waiting list, and he would open up Bantry Hospital for that. And I'm going, uh, I'm meeting with the management in Bantry Hospital over this and other issues that that are arising over the last uh, week or so that need to be addressed. And at nine thirty on, on on Friday morning, and I I need I, I'm hoping that they'll work with me to make sure that the procedures like the cataract can be carried out in Bantry because many procedures can be carried out there but certainly there's other issues as well about consultants lots of consultants that we need to to discuss as well so I'm, I'm hopefully we can make some progress there on, on Friday morning Okay well, uh, well, well, well stay there because on the actually on the loss of the consultant I know Dr Dennis uh, Cotter who's a Bantry based GP uh, is on the other line Good morning to you uh, Dennis Good morning this is, this is a big worry at the moment Bantry General <laughs> Hospital has lost a consultant yeah, Patricia, can I just come back to something Michael said there? Yeah. Number one, um, I've had several patients up to Belfast having their knee and hip done. Have you? Yeah, no, it, Michael has actually arranged some of them, so I have to give him credit. And the service, what happens is absolutely fantastic. They get a friend to drive them up and they're picked up four days later. And um, I take out the clips or the stitches, and it's it's just a wonderful service. And people must be in a hell of a lot of pain to decide to go down that route to go to Belfast to have the operation done. Well, I think if you make people desperate, they'll take any route to get rid of their pain. Anybody who's had, uh, you know, knee or hip rib replacements, I've had my own knee rib replaced, and it's just a, a new life. Yeah. And I know I'm in a privileged position. I didn't have to wait. But if if I was told I'd have to wait two years, I'd have been on the next bus to Belfast. And anybody who's, as I say, has had a knee or hip rib replaced is so desperate to get it done, they'd go anywhere. This, um, this, and, and this suggestion of Michael that Bantry General Hospital could be used as a site for a cataract. Yeah, I think it's, um, you know, we have a wonderful theatre in Bantry, state-of-the-art, just done up, totally underused. Bring down consultants from Cork and they could do a variety of procedures. Cataracts, I mean, sticks out because they have a day procedure and that's what Bantry is really suited for. But certainly bring on the, the, the consultants and Bantry will, will do it. It's a great idea. OK, tell me about the consultant. Is the consultant has retired? Well, we've a lot of problems with medical staff in Bantry Hospital. Um, Dr Oliver de Boulver retired and he hasn't been re- replaced. So we're down to three medical consultants now from, from four. And of course, immediately that's impinging on our local medical assessment unit because it's putting 
uh, desperate pressure on the consultants that are there. We're getting the health board to find to bring down locum after locum to re- re- replace people for a week. There's no continuity, um, and it's putting pressure on the staff. Uh, if they're not re- replaced, the Bantry, you know, the medical assessment is going to have to go to a five-day week. So you're not going to get sick at all at the weekend. Oh, for God's sake! And is it, you, 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 but is it is it difficult to uh, entice and encourage someone to come to live and work in Bantry? Well, I suppose there's there's two things. You know, the help or excuse always is we can't get anybody. We've advertised the job, but let's face it, like that's what these that's what the help are actually paid for and paid very well is to make sure the hospital are staffed properly. That's number one. Number two, if they are having difficulty getting people to come to rural locations, and I know it's happening with GPs, I think they're going to have to give an incentive yeah. for people to yeah. come down. Like you, before you got an incentive to live in Dublin, now, um, or you got an allowance to live in Dublin, now give people an allowance. Um, like they used to do for GPs that's to a, live in a r- rural area. That's a great suggestion. Would you agree with that, Michael Collins? Absolutely, I would agree with that. And, and you know, I think a lot of people that have, you know, taken up residence from, from across the world in Bantry have seen the beauty of the place, and, you know, and the, the more relaxed living uh, that's there. But certainly they need an incentive initially to bring them here. And that hasn't been uh, that hasn't been put in place. And we, I was led to believe, and others were led to believe, uh, when Dr. Oliver was, was leaving last year, the disposition was going to be filled. And we were told that from the floor. I was told that from everywhere else. But it looks to me as if we were slightly, uh, again, uh, misled. And, and we're now facing a very serious situation in, in, in Bantry Hospital and a situation that I, I didn't think we'd find ourselves in from the guarantees I got last year, but now we have. So we need to, again, you know, that's part of the reason why I'm looking for this meeting uh, with the management on, on, on uh, Friday morning to make sure that, you know, to get clarity from them and assurances from them that uh, this has been looked into and, and, and been overturned, basically. Okay, we'll leave it there. It's an issue. Pen, I know. Pen, yeah. Pen, Dennis, can I yeah. Come, can I come back for one sec? You can. We, because we have another problem in Bantry too, that um, the, our local injuries unit, which was put in place to replace our casualty, yeah. we were guaranteed that would be staffed properly, that they had two extant uh, people recruited and that uh, this w- w- would be to replace our casualty to a very high standard. And that indeed was the case. While we had Rachel Fellows and Jeff Featherston there. Uh, Jeff retired, just like Dr. Oliver. And again, the health board had no replacement. So our local injuries unit is under serious threat as well. Okay, I've just had a statement sent in by the uh, Minister Jim Daly to say the HSE has advised us that a locum consultant, general physician, tendered his resignation with the We know all that. Hospital management was informed of his resignation on the 3rd of October and since that date have been actively liaising with both the clinical director and the medical manpower manager at Cork University Hospital. The locum was appointed in August following the retirement. The consultant has agreed to continue on a short-term basis to provide four outpatient sessions per week. Bantry Hospitals, three permanent, we know all that. A new fifth consultant has also been approved by 
the SWHG and have submitted to the HSE. Okay, that's going on and on and on. All right, basically, he's just reiterating everything we already knew. Okay. All right, we'll leave it there and, and it's an issue. We will return to gentlemen in the meantime. Thank you for that. And uh, thanks uh, for joining us. That is Deputy uh, Michael Collins and Bantry based GP, uh, Dr. Dennis Cotter. Court today with Breedhaven Nursing Home Mallow. It's family run, so your loved one will feel at home. See breedhaven.ie. C103. And just a couple of people have been on the home health issue. Alma says people will not take up the job as a home help as the starting wage now is 11 euro an hour. No one is going to work for that uh, these days. And it was one of the issues that Home Instead said that they, they reckon that HSE uh, is not making the job uh, attractive and that it's a, you know, people are preferring to go into retail than go into working as home helps. While Ellen uh, isn't that impressed with all home helps, she says home helps don't work the full hours. I think home helps should clock in and clock out. Uh, as many will stay for, many are meant to stay for half an hour, but they end up only staying for 10 minutes and then they're gone. But how can you get somebody to clock in and clock out when they're going into people's houses? I don't know how, uh, what system you put in place to make that work, uh, Ellen. And I certainly would, would think the majority of home helps are not doing that. You'll always get the rogue ones in the middle, but the majority work above and beyond what they're even paid to do. You're listening to Cork Today on replay. Phone and text lines are currently closed. Don't forget all this week we are teaming up with the Everyman Cork's favourite traditional panto this year is Cinderella and we are giving family a family pass which is for four people to go along and see Cinderella at the Everyman on Thursday the 13th of December along with a 50 euro voucher for Son of a Bun on McCurtain Street in Cork where we're inviting the family to enjoy the best burger in uh, Ireland. In the next hour we will give you a cue to call with a panto question and we'll open the phone lines and you're chance uh, to win thanks to the uh, Everyman and you can check out more about the pantomime on the everyman.com Some of your texts and calls coming into the programme Mary says Hi Patricia saw John Hannan on Clareburn Live last night Oh I, go, I must look back on the player I didn't realise that John was, go- was going to be on uh, This was John obviously updating people on the great news that he had that we spoke about with him last week and that was Respresia uh, the drug that's been keeping him alive now for over a decade He's now been guarantees that he has that drug for life and it was fantastic news for John but as Mary in her text says John was on the Clareburn last night uh, sharing that uh, story uh, but he also had to uh, was sitting with the daughter of the lady who passed uh, away was also uh, interviewed so it was bittersweet isn't it just cruel for that family thinking of what might have been if their mother had been granted the medication in time that she so needed. So sad, said Mary. And I know when I interviewed John Hannan and while John was thrilled last week that his battle is now over with the government and the drug company and the Department of Health and the drug now, he'll have the drug for life. He was very much thinking of the two ladies that had died, Anna Cassidy and Marion Kelly. They both died during the time that they were taken off the drug. They were taken off for on a temporary basis and it really was their debts that spurred the I think the drug company to go back and give it to the patients on the compassionate grounds again while they went back into negotiations uh, with the Department of Health but yeah bittersweet for the families of those uh, two ladies and also for the others because what was agreed last week is just for the 19 patients who were part of the original trial they were already estimated that there's 40 additional patients living with the disease 
who are seeing what Respresia is doing for the rest of the people who have alpha 1 which is a genetic form of emphysemia for the for the 40 additional patients it must be really hard and I know the battle goes on for them to try to get the Respresia so that they can go on to live as normal a life as uh, possible. Thank you Mary for your WhatsApp. We were talking about begging and we will talk about begging again uh, in the next uh, hour. When you're talking about begging by gangs, these gangs have been doing this for years in the United Kingdom. A TV programme a year or so ago showed how they were begging and then sending the money back to Romania where these gang leaders work from and the big houses that they actually live in and that's my big worry is where the money ultimately is ending up. And Tim says the Romanian government have no interest in the Roma community. They actually tried to get them out of Romania. The big issues, that's the magazine that homeless people sell. According to Tim, he thinks partly responsible for encouraging begging. Peter Casey would sort out that problem, says uh, Tim. Um, that's by text to 103 and I can see a lot of texts coming in about home helps as well and I will return to them I promise but I want to move on because earlier this year my next guest Joan joined me to highlight delays with getting an appointment in Beaumont Hospital it was ordered to have a tumour in her brain removed. Joan is back to update us on her story. Good morning to you, Joan. Good morning, Patricia. Uh, and, and you are welcome. Now, at the time, we had some positive news in that you got a surgery date. It was for April, but unfortunately, it wasn't successful. Tell me what happened back in April. OK, back in April, when we got the letter, because of yourselves and Jim Daly helping us out, we got the date for the 18th of April, to go to Dublin to get the surgery done. My daughter drove me to Dublin and as we arrived in the hospital, I was told there was no bed. So I couldn't be accepted in admissions. So we had to go and get B&B, stay in Dublin for the night and was told to ring again in the morning to see if there was a bed available. We rang again that morning, there was no bed available. So we came back to West Cork and then they rang us on Friday morning saying there was a bed available to come back up. So we went back up. Um, On admissions, I was told surgery would be done on Monday morning. So um, that was grand. All was fine. Sunday night, the doctors came around to me and told me, no, it wasn't going to be done on Monday, but it was going to be done on Tuesday. So Monday came and went, and Tuesday morning we had I had the surgery. Okay, but the the the, the bad news here was it wasn't successful, Joan. It wasn't successful. What did they say? Why? Because the angle they went into, they couldn't reach it. The tumor was too deep in the brain. So you now only discovered this when you came out of the operation. They then had yes. to break this news to you. So they then yes. said that they would reschedule they t- the operation. Yes. But um, they also, when they were inside um, trying to do the surgery, they came across an old tumour and they scraped part of that away. But on the way out, they damaged the muscle of the right eye. So um, my right eye, I can't see out through it properly by no means. It's um, double vision all the time. So um, anyway... As the days went on, they told me that I was going to be rescheduled and they had to go in through a different angle to make sure that they could get at the tumour. 
Right. Now, the tumour at this stage was four centimetres, and they told me that time it was still growing. So they led me to believe that they were going to call me back between June and July to do the second surgery. And go in at it from a different angle, and they would be able to get it out. They were going to open the skull and get at it and okay. get as much. I know they weren't going to get it all. They told me that from day one because it was the way too deep that I'd have to have chemo possibly after the surgery. Okay, but you were happy enough to go ahead with that. Oh, absolutely. So um, they told me they'd call me within June and July. Okay. June and July came and went and I got no answer, no questions, no nothing from anybody. So I wrote to them in August asking them what was going on, was I after slipping through the net, or what was after happening. So the only thing I got back was an appointment letter to attend the clinic. So I attended the clinic in September. Um, I asked them what was going on. He said they have been very busy, and that uh, accident and emergencies had to be prioritised. I quite understand that, Patricia, Mm. but this is 12 months down the line. You know, so he promised me there and then faithfully he would do it between October and November. So I pleaded with him and I asked him to do it in October because the time was going on. So um, he caught me. I caught him by the hand and I asked him, first of all, please make it October. So he looked at me and smiled and said nothing. And that's where I was left at. And October has come and gone and obviously you haven't had the operation. We are at the 20th of November today and you still still don't have a date. Well, in the meantime, the doctors that were treating me early in CUH was after sending me out an appointment for the 6th of November to go up, as he thought, was for... um, to find out how I got on after the surgery because he told me he received a letter stating the surgery was to be done in October and he was to follow through to see how I was getting on in November. So you so went it, to an outpatient appointment in CUH on the 6th of November to a consultant believing he was doing a checkup on an operation and he didn't find out that you didn't have the operation until you walked in. That's right. My God. He was fuming because I asked him to make a phone call and he told me he there was no point in making a phone call. He would write a letter. Now, I'm, as late as last Friday, I phoned CUH, I phoned his secretary to find out had there any update from the letter he sent in. Yeah. And she, she told me, no, there was no update. I phoned Bournemouth Hospital to find out was I on the list, was was I given a date? And no, they told me no, no date yet. I am on the list, but it wouldn't matter whether I was one or 51 because it's priority. Whoever comes in as an emergency takes priority. I quite understand all that. But this, as I say, is 12 months down the road. How long is the priority? And are you fearful that that four centimetre tumour in your brain is growing, Joan? They've done an MRI in August and they told me it stopped growing, but okay. they don't know why it stopped growing, that it could start growing just as easily as it stopped. OK, well, let's stay on the positive and let's hope that it has stayed at least uh, the same size. What is your quality of life like? Oh, I have no quality of life. My whole life has changed. 
my whole life has changed. I'm worse now than what I was back last November because when they damaged the eye, um, they, I was driving up until then. They told me I couldn't drive anymore. I'm very slow to walk downtown and I'm very near the town because the steps and I missed the steps so I could fall down steps or fall up steps. Do you understand me? Oh no, because of so, this double vision. Because of the double vision. Is so that, will that be permanent or can that be reversed when the operation is done? They told me they will try. Okay. But there's no guarantees. There's no guarantees. Um, I could lose the sight in it completely. But in, in one they eye. will try, but if they won't try on the way out from the surgery from this, the tumour. They will have to give things time to to relax again. To settle down. And all that to but down. your bigger worry, Joan, is this tumour and... and you want it's it's getting the tumour removed and then whatever chemo or radiation or whatever they think is appropriate. Yeah, they won't do radiation. I'm after 35 sessions of radiation and they told me there's enough radiation in the body okay. that if they're going down any path, they will go down the chemo. Now, to be honest, the tumour that's there now, Patricia, is cancerous. So I want it out. And they're telling me that's the only option I have is that it's got to get out. Are you in pain? Yes. No, not all the time. I can I can manage it, but there's times and I can't. But it's your quality of life is... Oh, my whole quality of life is gone. You're housebound, I'm, basically. I am housebound. I'm lucky to get out. Now, my family are great. Don't get me wrong. My daughters and my husband, they have been great, and all my neighbours and everything. But you lose your independence. That's hard. I'm only 57. Do you know, I mean, I don't, I think I'm too young to lose my independence. And then I, I asked for home help and they turned me down. Why? They said I wasn't bad enough. And what would you, if for home help, if, if you could get home help in the morning, what, what would you require of them to do? What do you feel you need help with? Um, a bit of shopping. Now, as I say, my family are great and they do all this, but they're families of their own. And I don't want to be imposing. I know they say it's not imposing, being your family. Yeah. But, you know, and sometimes, as you said this morning, it's just someone else to talk to as well, mm. because you're there looking at the four walls. What's Christmas but going to, to be like, fire, To light a fire, to get a bit of dinner ready. Um, I've broken more cups in the last 12 months than I have in my lifetime. Because you go to put them on the worktop and you're missing the worktop and they go to the floor. Now, the cup could be full. It could be empty. Do you know? You've got to be careful around that and with the hot kettles and, and cooking and whatever. Exactly. Are you dreading Christmas? I love Christmas. I absolutely love Christmas. I have three daughters and three grandsons and I love, always have loved Christmas. And I really would like to be home for the Christmas. You want the tumour out? Yes. And you back home recovering? And getting 2018 over me, put mm. it down as a bad year, forget mm. it, and get on with 2019 and things can only get better. Okay, stay in that positive frame of mind and we'll we'll put a call through and uh, see if we can find out anything for you, Joan. But in the meantime, thank you for that. And, Patricia, uh, yeah. I'm sorry now, but the last time um, when I was on, 
um, we were saying that Jim Daly might be able to help. Yeah. Now, Jim did help the last time along, as I say, with yourself. Is there any point in getting him involved again this time? Okay, well, we'll, we'll, make, the, we'll make the necessary calls, uh, Joan, and we'll get back to you. Thank you so much. All right, much. okay, look after yourself. Look Thank after you. yourself. Bye bye. That's tough going. And it, it's tough at 57, uh, you know, a very independent woman to suddenly be housebound while you're waiting around like that, knowing that there's this ticking time bomb, knowing that this tumour, OK, now at the moment, let's stay positive and let's hope that it stays at the four centimetres. But knowing that at any stage it could start to grow again, it's just like it's the mental side of it, isn't it? The the mental anguish of knowing that you have cancer in your body uh, and it, the fact that it's in your brain. Uh, for some reason, a ticking time bomb keeps coming into my mind. Um, it's tough. That is tough going. OK, we'll put the necessary calls through and see if we in any way can get it moved on or even find out if Joan knew, you know, if even if they came back and said, absolutely, she's going to be done on whatever date it is. But tell somebody. But it's just this, it's this not knowing, not knowing, not knowing. And she is right. It's going on now for almost a year. 1850 Some of your texts coming in on the home help um, system. A couple of texts in on that. I work as a home help says the texture. No travel expenses, eleven euro per hour and I do one overnight. I'm paid for ten hours and yet I work eleven hours. The money paid is simply not enough. Also, you are never finished. Nobody wants to work weekends, evenings or night time. A job nine to five is way easier. So there's someone as a home health can understand why when we're hearing from the one of the private companies like Home Instead who are saying they can't get people to work because nobody wants to work the antisocial hours. Nobody wants to work. It can be tough going as well. It can be tough work. And for 11 euros an hour, people are kind of feeling, no, I'll, I'll work in the local supermarket and I'll get that and more. And at least I'll have regular hours and I know where my hours are. And if I can get in on a nine to five job, even better. Mike says, hi, Patricia, on the home help system. Surely the way to cut down on home helps not fulfilling their time allocated is for the coordinator to do spot checks. Also, I know on the clocking in and clocking out system, it is used by some of the private companies. The carer has to ring in on arrival at the clients and they do the same thing as they leave. Some home helps are fantastic. Others are not. Uh, but as in is the case in every walk of life, the difference here is they're working with sick, elderly and vulnerable people, says Mike. And you will get bad apples, unfortunately, in every single walk of life. There will be people who will do above and beyond and there will be people who will take the mick and will do as little as possible for the same amount of pay, which is rather galling, I have to say. Because here's somebody uh, that says, and some of us, some of us, sorry, the, the screen just uh, moved. I mean, there, and some of us uh, get the hours and we end up going way over it. We never get paid for any of that. We never get asked about the extra that we do. Lister says, hi, I get €249 Euro per week to care for my mother. I do that 24 hours a day, seven days a week. I do it for love of my mother. How would the Taoiseach and Simon Harris, how could they feel that this amount of money is a living wage? €249. Euro. Yes, as a carer, I'm allowed to work for 15 hours a week outside of the home. But where and how could I possibly do that? Who would care for my mother when I went out to work 
for those uh, 15 hours. It is simply unrealistic. 1850 And there's uh, somebody I just spotted in the middle of all those texts when we're talking about the knee operations and how successful the cataract operations are in Belfast. And, and I didn't realise how many people were travelling up for knee and hip operations. Here's somebody that says, Trish, I had my knee done in Belfast in April and the morning that I was having my knee done, there was two knees and a hip also been done. All cork men. Brilliant says a texter. Well done. Well done and good to know the operation was such a success. 1850-333-103. John Paul taking your calls. Text to WhatsApp 0862-103-103. C103 Jobs. Uh, Tots to teens that their child care in Carrigan-Navarra. They're looking for two full-time child care assistants with level five and R6 qualifications. The car sales executive and service advisor wanted for Deer Park Motors in Charleville. While that's a wrap in Timaleague, they're looking for a food truck manager. It's to run their new venture. You must be a car owner. And a manager is required to manage a minibus slash taxi company in the Cork City area. Partnership would be considered. You'll find all the details and more job opportunities by going online now. Just go to c103.ie forward slash jobs for more. This is... C103. Court today. With Breedhaven Nursing Home Mallow. It's family run, so your loved one will feel at home. See breedhaven.ie. C103. This is the Court Today replay on C103. I spent the weekend engrossed in an extraordinary memoir. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. When it comes to your finances, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, and you've invested all that you can. Now it's time to take those investments to the next level by using the brand behind every great investor, Yahoo Finance. As America's number one finance destination, Yahoo Finance has everything you need, whether you're a seasoned trader or just dipping your toes into the market. Join the millions of investors who trust Yahoo Finance to guide them on their financial journey. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit yahoofinance.com the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. From an extraordinary woman entitled The Stars Are Our Only Warmth, Alice Leahy's autobiography tells her story and a life dedicated to homeless people in Dublin. And I'm delighted to say Alice Leahy joins me on the programme. Good morning to you, Alice. Good morning, Patricia. And you're, you're welcome to the programme. Your Thank childhood you. sounds like one of Alice Taylor's books. It was idyllic rural experiences. Was the move to Dublin to train as a nurse, was that a huge culture shock? Well, of course, Patricia, I, I'm writing about now a lifetime ago where rural Ireland was uh, was different from what it is today, even though nothing changes in some ways. But coming to Dublin at that time, it was like you're going to New York or someplace. 
because uh, and there was a train going through Feathered from uh, went on, then on to Clonmel so I remember distinctly getting on the train and when you left then it was moving to a city that has changed dramatically but it was just like uh, going to New York now and we didn't have Skype and we didn't have phones but we constantly got the letters from home and uh, so it was a big culture shock and then we uh, I trained as a nurse in Beckett Street and of course nursing then the training of the nurses then was very different from the training of nurses today because nowadays uh, nurses go to the universities but our nursing really was an apprenticeship so you lived in the nurses home and it was like being in boarding school I'm sure and there were all the rules and the regulations and the hard work it was a different world but I know in my heart and soul there are probably lots of women because we were all women in those days I'm sure there are lots of women listening into your programme who will say well, God I remember it well living in the nurses home Yeah and then I mean down to been teaching you how to make the beds a certain and way and even even dusting I remember the matron w- would come up and she'd run her hand along the end of the bed or over the light bulb and if that wasn't cleaned so you also did an awful lot of work that people wouldn't associate with nursing now but it was all very important and it, it was a great foundation for the future and your uniforms had to oh, be uniforms. impeccable when I look at photographs now and the starched um, apron and the dress and the, the Mary Hick shoes <laughs> and the black I laughed at the Mary Hick <laughs> shoes. <laughs> I can still see them and, and even looking at the photographs they were just so different and when you look at books now at, at the minute and they're promoting nursing and call the midwife and that, you still have those old uniforms but we took great pride in our uniform and there was a laundry of course in the hospital and if matron didn't like, if your uniform was filthy or whatever matron soon told you and you were reprimanded and, and I still to this day, I think uniform is very interesting because it gives you a, a strange sense of power but I hate to see people wearing any kind of a uniform where it's not neat and clean. smart looking. Yeah, yeah, it says I agree. An awful lot about and the other one that came across was putting a lid on your emotions. That was quite difficult for you, and especially when you were such young girls. Well, when I looked at the notes that I had taken on nursing in those days, and I had kept them. I mean, it was quite amazing. I mean, you weren't meant to show your emotions. You were meant to stand back when matron... Uh, you know, you were to greet matron if she arrived in the door. You weren't to leave her standing. You were to stand back for the consultants who were all men. But, of course, we learned basic manners when we were growing up anyway. So there was nothing kind of new in that. And the one interesting note that I came across, which I think has stayed with me all along, and I think is it's as important today as it was then, you treat the patient as a person, not as a patient. Mm-hmm. And I think that's very important because I think if we if we treat uh, the people we come across as people first, you can't go too far wrong. But you had to hide your emotions, and I think that's a very dangerous thing uh, for anyone 
be told to do. Yeah. I, I think if you can't show your emotions, I think it does something to you. And you were also encouraged to look after the family members of, of oh, the patients. And you also got to know the visitors. Yeah. And you, you, that is something you wouldn't, I mean, you're lucky if you see a nurse now or a human being when you go into a hospital. And you certainly can't make eye contact with them. You the certainly <laughs> can't and I think that's shocking. And there's none of these kind of the nurse looking across over the bed at the doctor and they're falling in love and living happy ever after. <laughs> you don't look at anybody now. No, you no, which so is a pity. Which is, it's, and, 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 you know, you talk about, the, the, I mean, cleanliness was next, next to godliness. It might explain as well why, why there wasn't uh, any of the superbugs that the we have too, today. We didn't have Patricia. I remember distinctly there had to be a definite space between each bed. And, they, you know, that you just had to have that space. And sure, look at now, beds are on top of each other, trolleys are on top of each other. Sure, it's no wonder we have infection. And the poor nurses or doctors can't get around. And mixed wards, that wouldn't have been around Not in your day. Not at all. No. I did, when I went to, later on, the, the board of the hospital sent me to London to come back and set up an intensive care unit with the consultants. There would have been maybe a nod, uh, mixed wards at times. But, I mean, I think for people going into hospital and they waking up and finding, you know, somebody, and, and it's never explained to them why why it's mixed. It's almost like throwing people to, people together without bearing in mind maybe their culture, their sensitivities, their humanity. Yeah, yeah. Uh, your, your work at the Rotunda was where you started to see real poverty for the first time because yes. even though you know living in rural uh, part of, of Tipperary you didn't have a lot of money but you wouldn't have experienced the kind of poverty you got to see in the inner city flats No I mean in, in, we, I grew up in, in, in Feathered and, and we grew up in a big estate it wasn't our estate but sure it was my estate I loved every <laughs> blade of grass in it but we, there was a great sense of community and people looked out for the elderly maybe for people living alone and we used to go into Cashel to still call the, the county home St. Patrick's Hospital which great it shows that change can come about but we would visit maybe people who had no visitors but when I was in Dublin the poverty in Dublin was something completely different and I remember I I went down I got involved with voluntary services international and I used to visit the flats down in Ben Burb Street and anyone now from the country coming up to Dublin if they're on the Lewis going into town those flats the, 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 the remaining entrances to those flats are still there but and then in the rotunda doing midwifery I mean there was a huge big ward with a lot of patients in it and the same women came in year after year I stayed there as a public health as a a staff nurse uh, for a few years but the poverty that's when you really and then going out on district and there was another woman she was a prairie nurse Biddy Butler I remember going out with her into the slums and the poverty that smell of poverty you know you had the damp walls there was no growth there was maybe one toilet on the landing and there there was absolutely nothing but the people living there they do you know they never complained and they always made you feel welcome and um, I today in my own work I have come across people I have no doubt there's one man in particular who sticks to my mind I have no doubt I listen to his heartbeat in his mother's voice goodness and and these are the women who had nearly every year were in the rotunda having another baby after another baby there's no contraception available not at 
all, sure, nothing like that. And but you, I can still see the charts. There were some of the nursing sisters had very distinctive writing, and I can still see the big brown chart and the name and the number of pregnancies, one after the other, and the ones maybe they sadly lost in between. And you know they never complained, although for some of them you could realise it was their annual holiday. Oh, and of course, people were able, they were kept in hospital for a week a longer. Yeah, yeah, for, for, for a week in, uh, in, in some cases. That's right. And, and, just, and just back to the hospitals for a moment, the domestic staff that you would have worked with. Many of these at the bottom rung of the ladder oh, in the pecking order of the hospital. Um, I didn't realise that many of those had come out of the state-run institutions and, and, some and of, schools. Some of them did. Yeah. Some of them afterwards. And they had been brought up in care. They had got a job. They always had the kind of mark of an institution where they were obedient, they made sure they they kept uh, the, the, the ward sister happy. They were always on time. If they weren't on time, they apologised and they worked so hard. And I remember a woman one day, I was on the, the female landing in Bagot Street and of course the consultant who will remain nameless walked, he's dead now anyway, he walked along with his students behind him all clip-clop along the corridor and this poor woman was using a buffer. It was like um, the brush of a handle with a big block of wood on the end of it and at the end of that then there was something like uh, what you'd see in an old blanket structure and there she was getting a shine up and he didn't even say excuse me so she picked it up and she threw it after him (laughs) I never saw that poor woman afterwards I'm sure she had her moment she she was reprimanded when in fact you know it was his ignorance yeah absolutely your move then from your work with Simon going from this highly organised Organized hospital system with you know a place for everything, everything in its place, to what seemed like utter chaos inside and Simon. Well, when, how I heard in the meantime, I had been sent to the London Hospital to to look at intensive care units and come back and set up an intensive care unit with the consultants. So I was running that, and I was dealing an awful lot with technology. And some of the problems are the same as we hear from the nurses today. You didn't have enough staff. You were depending on agency nurses. People didn't get their time off. There were all of those things, but there were never was there never was an opportunity for kind of for everyone to sit back and discuss the sort of issues around what was happening. But I had worked with VSI in Benburb Street, and there I got to know some of the people in in Simon. So I told one of the consultants one day I was leaving and going to Simon, and I gave up a permanent pensionable job. And I can still see him without betting an eyelid. He looked at me and he said, not a smile on his face, and he said, I will make an appointment for you to see a psychiatrist. Like he, he genuinely meant that. Well, he thought he, he, the assumption was I was mad because I was giving up a permanent pensionable job. My God. And, but anyway, I went, to, and at Simon in those days, uh, I got to know the founder of Simon as well, but in those days, Simon was very different from kind of what we see now. We worked in a condemned building down facing Guinness. It was an appalling building. And the people who were homeless, there were men and women, and many of the people who were homeless then too were people who had come out of institutions. But they'd be, some of them would be kind of known as the characters who were around. And we all shared the same accommodation. We stayed there. We only had two nights off a week. We had the pay that people got on the dole. Uh, it was, uh, and there was, but there was huge energy there. We shared, as I, I woke up one night and I felt a weight across my feet, and there was 
some poor man who uh, he was as drunk as a lord probably and came in and just flump on the bed and there'd be people sleeping on the staircase and down underneath under the stairs it was just I, it was a, an amazing place but in some ways it was a real sense of community because I came across a lot of wonderful people there were journalists there were civil servants there were bankers who had given up maybe a year of their time to work full time and then there were part time uh, workers as well and then of course we had you were all the bedding and all of that was all second hand and those days we had DDT you don't have that anymore and we'd get up in the morning we'd have to clean the beds and shake the DDT on them and uh, you know it was just and DDT is to kill lice is it? Yeah we had the usual lice and we had all of that incidentally I mean I I remember when I was night sister in Bagger Street I, I got scabies and I didn't know what it was. So when people come in to me now and they have scabies, well, I don't get too alarmed. You just, yeah. well, look at your I had it too. <laughs> yeah, don't worry about it. We all, we all had it at some stage. Yeah. Looking after Alice and tending to the feet of homeless people is something that's very important to you. If we can't look after our feet, and I think this goes for everyone, I mean, we take our feet for granted. You're walking around all day. You can afford comfortable shoes, maybe in good socks. The feet is the one thing here. And as I'm speaking to you now, I know there is somebody out there with their feet in a, in a basin. If you're out walking around all day and you can't, and all week, and you can't change your uh, socks, you can't put on shoes, uh, it is just awful. And I think if you can't deal with something as basic as that, you'll get infections, you'll get cellulitis, uh, all kinds of things. And it's interesting you should mention feet. I was on the late late there two weeks ago and I mentioned that to Ryan Tuberty. And would you believe it, a man rang me from Waterford and he came up yesterday to us with a supply of uh, their savers that you put into basins when people are washing their feet to prevent cross-contamination. But the thing that struck him was the feet, because I think we can all relate to feet. And I, I'd say to people, when we hear about homelessness, everyone talks about the millions and the bricks and mortar and this, that and the other. I think if we just sit down and think of feet, it can make such a difference. And I think, I just think there's something very human about washing there somebody is. else's feet. Isn't there? Yeah, and I, I don't I, know I what it is. somebody came in one day, now we're non-denominational, somebody looked in and saw somebody with their feet and saw one of the... the one of us here washing them and they said isn't there something biblical about yeah, that I because we, yeah. isn't a good Friday at the bishop goes yeah to and washes the feet yeah I can yeah. tell you though they could come out and see what the feet we see every I know day. I know you describe that very well in the book as well I have to say yes. the need for public baths and showers something that we we once had in Dublin but we don't have anymore and I know you've got to push for them to to, to, to have them again we did and, and there was a pu- there were public baths we work in the basement of the Ivy Hostel and across from the road there were the Ivy Bats and there'd be lots of your listeners I'd say who went to the Ivy Bats and um, we used to even give it, it was handed over then to the council a number of years ago and the porter there we used to even loan him towels for people going in there and now it's a private gym but there should be public showers in any city. I mean, it is absolutely ridiculous. And just recently, I had a piece in, there were 10 new ideas, 10 good ideas to make Dublin a better city. And we had made a submission for public showers to Dublin City Council 12 years ago. We sent it in again to the councillors after the last election. 
Well, if you heard all the calls we got and all the reasons why it shouldn't happen, I think we're a great country for saying, oh, it shouldn't happen, rather than saying, come on and get it going. Now, we would have people, we would have, on a given morning, we could have 20 people having a shower here, all sleeping out, and we're not a public washing facility. But you know, even worse than that, we have no public toilets in Dublin. But would you believe it? I saw last night, uh, we didn't have iPads or that when I started out, but I saw where Dublin City Council has now decided to open two public toilets. And I can tell you, we won't get any credit for getting that. I, you know, I saw I we're, saw that last night and I thought he is straight yeah. away. I said, Alice will be delighted with her. But yeah, two. But, but only but only two. For, for only two. City. So you better not get, you better not get your taken in the middle Absolutely. of the and, and Alice, I could talk to you all day and, and, and I'm advising everyone that I have met uh, since I've been reading your book to say, if you're looking for a good, if you to buy one book this Christmas by Alice Leahy, the, uh, the stars are only warmth because it's it's a terrific read. The face of homelessness has it has has it changed much it in has. the four decades? No, I mean now when we talk about homelessness, we're talking about families, and that is a completely separate issue. And there is a problem. Uh, uh, people are losing their homes, and and that is is a problem. And that does that that is going to take time because you can't wave a magic wand and just build so many houses. Uh, you know, overnight. But the people who normally became homeless and continue to become homeless uh, will always be there. They are the people who have uh, all kinds of problems. Sometimes they're people who just never fitted in. And would you believe it, on the bus the other day, I, I, I don't drive and I was getting on the bus and I asked a man if I could sit in, could I move in past him? And he looked at me and he said, oh, it's Alice, isn't it? And I said, yes. I said, uh, he said, do you remember me? And I said, no. And he said, I met him in the early 80s. And it so happened he was from a Munster county. (laughs) And uh, I said to him, how did you become homeless then? And he said, I just left home. I only go, I said, you in touch at all. This has gone back to this. He said, I go down every so often to look at, at," he said, would you believe it, Cork and Prairie playing for a match. And I get on the train and I come back. And I said, what are you doing now? And he said, well, I had a flat, he said, and I just walked out. And I said, why did you walk out? He said, I don't know. And he said, I haven't had a drink for over 12 years. So he would be fairly typical of the people we met in those early days. And an awful lot of the people we met came out of the institutions. And they never spoke about being in the institutions, but you could see it in their faces. And they all came from the island of Ireland. I remember we used at Christmas Eve, one of us used to come in because there would only be one person who would call on Christmas Eve and he came from Scotland. And now we are meeting from people from 26 different countries and most of them are like our own Irish of a generation ago. You know the people you see in in rooms in London, they're they go drink together, they go yeah, to the same yeah. church, they keep in touch maybe, and you can see the loneliness in their faces and the poverty. And many of the people we're meeting from abroad are just like that. Yeah, I remember talking with a man who went over to work with to try and fo- find homeless Irish people to bring them home. That's he right, was I a tipper- he was a Tipperary man as well. And, and, yeah, and he ran the buses. But I was, he right. told me a story of going under a bridge in London where he had been told 
Paddy and Johnny were Irish and he went looking for them and he met Paddy and Johnny sharing a tin of dog food and he said what he couldn't get over was Paddy got the tin of dog food and he shared it with Johnny and both of them starving. Uh, it was just, uh, listen, I've gone way over on time. The book is fantastic from one temporary woman to another. I couldn't be more proud of you. And Patricia, uh, let's hope we, we, we'll do better in the coming years. Absolutely. Early. Keep your fingers <laughs> crossed, girls. Thanks a million for joining us and Patricia, good luck with the book. And regards to Carp. <laughs> Thanks. Thanks for that. Bye bye. The wonderful Alice Leahy, a memoir. The stars are our only warmth. Court today with Breedhaven Nursing Home Mallow. It's family run, so your loved one will feel at home. See Breedhaven.ie. C103. I saw a text earlier on from somebody saying, is the, is, there garden, is the gardening slot on today? No, the gardening is on a Wednesday, so Peter Delta will be with us tomorrow. If you have a gardening question, uh, hold on to that. You're listening to Cork Today on replay. Phone and text lines are currently closed. And thank you to Pat, who says, who really enjoyed uh, listening to Alice Leahy. Yeah, I could have spoken to her all uh, day. Um, Pat says, Seamus Maguire was the gentleman whose name you were trying to think of, uh, Patricia from Thurless. He was the man who used to go over to, it started in London, but he went to other cities in England where he knew the Irish were congregated. He went to Birmingham, he went to Manchester. I think he went to Liverpool as well. And he used to bring people home from the United Kingdom. He used to bring them home by at at Christmas. So while the news was on, did a quick Google search just to remind me of Seamus Maguire and the amazing work that the man did because our paths crossed certainly 28 years ago now seeing as I was celebrating uh, only last week that the, this programme uh, is on air 28 years ago when I was originally broadcasting the programme from uh, Bandon Seamus Maguire contacted us because he was organising one of these buses to go over to the streets of London and he was looking for a bit of help. He was looking for clothes and blankets because obviously he couldn't get bring all of the people back and all of the people didn't want to come back. But he was doing his best to work with the young people, the young down and outs. And now you're talking about this would have been the early 90s at the time. The young down and outs in London, Irish people who went over there thinking, you know, the streets of London, they're paved with gold and all that. And then they fell on hard times. And they had lost contact with home or they were embarrassed to contact home to say that they had become homeless and they were relying on soup runs. And it was it was a tricky place to be in the 80s and 90s in to be in England. I mean, the troubles were, were, were underway. So to be Irish and homeless and down and out, it, it wasn't a good place to be. And Seamus Maguire saw what was going on. Uh, so he decided every Christmas he used to organise this bus. He used to bring a big bus over and buy enough tickets for the boat, for the ferry home. And then he'd go and he'd work around all the homeless shelters and the places where homeless people congregated. And he'd talk to the young people and he'd say, sure, why don't you go home? You don't have to tell them what happened. You can just arrive and they'll be delighted to see you. And it was Christmas week, he'd bring the bus home. And, and he filled that bus every single year for years and years and years. And then when he was over in England, he did great work with the people that he couldn't bring home. The people who didn't want to come home, who felt they had nothing to come home to. 
And actually, God, when I think about it now, he was meeting people who had come from the industrial schools at a time when we weren't recognise what, rec- recognising what was going on in the industrial school. They had no one to come back to. They had lost, they, they never had links with their family. And as soon as they got out of the industrial schools, they just jumped on, on, on the boat and went straight to England. And of course, they were all dealing with all kinds of mental health uh, issues because of the abuse that had been inflicted on, on them. And many of them, of course, turned to alcohol and became alcoholics and brought all kinds of all that, those kind of problems with them and they ended up then uh, homeless on the streets of uh, England. So Seamus and his organisation, he was known as, at one stage as the Irish Santa because he was bringing back so many people but he went over. So we got involved with him and we were organising to get blankets and he was looking for clothes, for warm clothes for these mainly men but there was some women uh, as well and um, I remember him coming to visit us at the at the studios in Bandon when he was doing a collection, picking up some of the stuff, and and he never married. He lived with his. Mo- I remember him clearly. I can remember him ringing his mother, and uh, overhearing the conversation where where he said, "Well, ma'am." God, the people of Cork have been so good and so generous. You won't believe the amount of stuff they've collected for us. And he was thrilled. He was absolutely uh, thrilled. And they reckon in the 20 year period from 1979 to 1999, it's estimated that over 4,000 people were helped through the work of Seamus Maguire and the organisation he set up both to bring the young people home and to help the homeless people and the homeless Irish people on the streets of London. He did the most amazing work. And then when when I started talking to Alice about him and he came into my mind and then somebody said his name is Seamus Maguire, I was saying to John Paul, I have a funny feeling that I heard that he passed away. So he did pass away. He actually died in, because I remember him as a great big man. He was, you know, huge, huge man. It seems he developed severe diabetic myopathy in his feet, which then stopped him being able to walk in the streets of London. But at that stage, he, he just directed operations from home because he kept his Christmas rescue coach. Uh, he continued to operate. I don't know when it actually stopped, but it certainly was operating well into the 90s. He died actually in two, the year 2000 and he was only 47 when he passed away. And what I'm really saddened to hear was because he lived alone, his body lay undiscovered in his home for a number of days. Uh, I was saddened to hear that, but he, he actually died. So it's now, uh, it's almost 18 years ago, but he was a an amazing man who uh, worked with the really less well-off uh, in society, but he would have been uncovering things at the time that we then since found out about, particularly those who had come through institutional abuse. Many of those were the men and women that he dealt with on the streets of London. So I'm I'm glad to remember the late uh, Seamus Maguire and the terrific, terrific work that he did in helping out home, homeless Irish. And that's what Alice is saying when she's dealing with, what did she say, 20 odd countries now when they're dealing with people that are homeless in in on the streets of Dublin. And many of them are like some of our Irish who went abroad all of those years ago and when they left to go to another country thinking they were going to become millionaires thinking they were going to have a great life and then they fell on hard times and they brought with them the baggage from home some of them going with mental health issues and the same obviously is happening with some of the people that come from other countries and come to what is what they perceive is a very rich and wealthy country and you know compared to where they come from we are a very wealthy uh, country so Pat thank you for reminding me of uh, Seamus's full name the late Seamus Maguire from Thurles and 
and we remember him today. Anyway, listening to Alice, Alice has evoked a lot of memories for a lot of people, particularly when she talks about the old hospital routine and the way she talks about her training in particular. Goodness me, nurses and the way they trained in the 60s, 70s and probably up into the 80s to the change in the 90s. Maybe it was the noughties when it when it changed. It was a strict strict uh, regime and Sandy says nice to hear a nurse of old of the old school talk about the hospital routine having been an occasional patient of different hospitals going back to the 1980s the one big change for Sandy is the lack of windows being opened by nursing staff to allow cold fresh air into the rooms this in my opinion says Sandy helped bridge the place of bugs also uh, Sandy reckons that the central heating system and the air conditioning units that they use is simply not a substitute says Sandy and back in the old days of the old training and the old hospital regime of the matron going around windows and there would be big windows in the hospitals thrown open to allow a bit of uh, fresh air in and to hear Alice talk about the matron coming along and you know sliding her hand across the back of the bed and in those days as nurses there was domestic staff but the nurses also did equally as nearly as much cleaning as the domestic staff did it was part of their training the June you know the lower down nurses uh, coming up but even when they were fully trained they were all expected to make sure that every one of the hospital wards were kept spick and spam and you know the point about the beds being on top of each other there was always space given no wonder there's cross contamination and bugs jumping from one bed uh, to the next bed and, and, and um, super I know super bugs people will say you can't talk about super bugs uh, because super bugs are to do because they become we've become we're using too much antibiotics and they wouldn't have been using as much antibiotics and that's the reason that we get so much of the super bugs uh, thank you for that Sandy and Mary when I was chatting with Alice and she writes um, a lot in the book about the Rotunda Hospital because she became a midwife and she trained to be a midwife and talking about the she talks about the poverty but she just talks about a different era for women having babies and that has got Mary thinking back and Mary says I had my children in the 60s, the 70s and the 80s and the one thing Mary said that I remember most now in hindsight was smoking in the maternity ward ashtrays were supplied to the mothers with the babies beside them. Then when I brought baby home, baby was brought home in the front seat of the car in my arms. There was no seat belts and the hubby was puffing away in the driver's seat. It's hard for the young generation to believe that. God bless me, Hall Martin, with his smoking ban, says Mary. And I remember that era as well. I certainly remember the era of the smoking in the hospitals, Mary. And it brought me back to memory. I remember going to visit, it would have been in the late 80s, going to visit um, uh, my one of my best friends. Actually, it's the 90s now that I think about it. I think about it because I was in Cork at the time because I remember going up to see her. Um, my, my best friend had a, a baby. It was her second child and who went on to be my goddaughter. And I remember going up to see her and going into the room to visit. And the room was just a cloud of smoke. We were, I mean, I was a smoker at the time myself, but you just couldn't see. And there was photographs taken of the new little baby in this puff and all the smoke uh, around. So, yeah, a very, very different era. And actually, Alice writes about that in, in her book as well. The way people were allowed to smoke in the hospital. Very, very different time uh, indeed. 18. 
1850 And while, while Alice Leahy's book is all about, you know, the homeless and the work that she, she has done, there's parts of the book that just will bring back a lot of memories of a very different era to a lot of people. Uh, Castle Magner... Castle Magner players have asked me to mention please that they are presenting Big Maggie this coming week Friday, Saturday and uh, Sunday and again the following weekend and it's in the community centre in uh, Castle uh, Magner. The play is a senior citizens fundraiser and everyone's support would be gratefully appreciated. Uh, we've been talking about Bantry Hospital earlier on and in particular we had the call go out from Michael Collins uh, the TD, saying why could Bantry Hospital not be looked at as a centre of excellence for cataract procedures? Why can't they open up a unit in Bantry Hospital and get cataract procedures done there? Do it Monday to Friday. Imagine five days a week if we were doing cataract operations. We wouldn't have any waiting list, that's for sure. That they wouldn't even have to have it permanently there. But if they initially did it to get rid of everybody off the waiting list and then set it up that they might only need to do it two days a week. But it would certainly be, I think, a runner with a lot of uh, people. And it would get and the, to think of people waiting on cataract operations and that they could be losing their sight uh, while they are waiting. Siobhan says, Patricia, wouldn't it be great if decompression treatment for carpal tunnel syndrome could be done in Bantry? I'm not too sure now what that treatment is. I am waiting two years now for that procedure. It's a great hospital, but it is totally underutilised says uh, Siobhan and I, and I imagine so says everybody else that's listening that has has had the pleasure of going in and out of Bantry Hospital know how underutilised it is as people in North Cork will say the very same thing about Mallow Hospital and there's Nina Hospital in Tipperary is another one that really seems to be is another hospital that's been underutilised but they seem to to be really getting their act together because I know I read at the weekend that Nina Hospital is one of the hospitals where they are doing the cataract procedures. The procedures like what we're talking about or Michael is talking about that we could do in Bantry. They're doing it in Nina uh, and I know I ended up having to bring Marsha to Nina Hospital a couple of years ago. Um, obviously as a special needs child when she needs to get a tooth out or a filling done. Well she's really really good when I take her to the dentist to get her teeth cleaned uh, and she'll pop into the chair and she you know she's fantastic she really is, is great about it all whereas most people are afraid of, of dentists she's not she's really good about it but obviously for something like having a bigger procedure done she has to go in under general anaesthetic and has to go to the dental hospital and there was a, there was an occasion where she needed to, she was having problems and, and because of Marcia's background coming from because she only came to live with us when she was eight and coming from an orphanage her new nutrition wouldn't have been good for the first eight years of, of her life God help her uh, so her teeth we, we struggle really with with our teeth because they, they are set down in those first I think it's five years your, your adult teeth are actually set down so good nutrition uh, unfortunately um, she didn't have so we will always battle to maintain her teeth and look after her teeth so we're, we're quite fastidious in keeping on top of that but anyway she had to have a couple of teeth removed at one stage and how do you explain to a deaf blind child there's a waiting list for the dental hospital love we'll get you in as soon as we can and we'd know the way except to go through the dental hospital so we had to go on the waiting list and the, we, it was just getting crazy at one stage and the waiting list was getting longer and longer and next we got contacted to say would we be willing to go to Nina 
to go. They were running a dental hospital up there. And I, I remember saying, I'll take her to Azerbaijan if I think I can get her out of pain. Of course we will. And we went and it was a day procedure in and out. And it was fantastic. It was absolutely fantastic. We went there and we uh, the very same as going to the dental hospital in Cork, except we did a bit of a longer journey uh, to do. And God help her, we had to take her fasting and it was, you know, she, just, she doesn't understand why I'm not getting breakfast to take her to the hospital. That was the only bit of an inconvenience uh, for her. But it was great. So Nina Hospital are definitely doing their bit to try to be more utilised. And, and I remember it struck me as I drove back from Nina that day saying, we've got Mallow and we've got Bantry in two fantastic hospitals that have been underutilised. We need to be using them uh, more. So we need to, anything we can do to sing the praises of those hospitals and get the powers that be to look at them to say, what else can we be doing in these hospitals? People will travel. I mean, we're, we're proving that with the people that are going to Belfast to have cataract op- operations. People are going to Belfast for knee and hip operations. People will travel, A, to get them out of pain, or B, they'll do it with the cataract operations because they fear of losing their sight. So open up Bantry and Mallow, please, and start utilising them. We, 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 it needs to happen and needs to happen sooner uh, rather than uh, later. And just one final comment in. This was on home helps that we've been discussing today. This is from a home care worker. All the extra hours. Oh yeah, okay. Now this ties in with Michael Collins, Deputy Michael Collins saying any time the issue of home health gets raised in the doll, the Minister for Health, Simon Harris, will stand up and, and say we are pouring millions upon millions into home care packages and home health. So the money is there. Not, not to do with funding, the money is there. This is a home care worker says all the extra home help hours are being given out to private companies. They're not being given to the HSE home care workers. We know that there are extra hours, but we can't get the hours. The HSE are paying paying the private companies to employ workers instead. Also, a lot of the beds for respite that had been allocated for respite in Clonakilty Community Hospital are now gone because those beds are now being used as step-down facilities to get people out, which is a great thing that they're doing in Clon Hospital, getting people out of step the, the people who are in acute hospitals that need step-down beds, they've been used in Clon Hospital. Now, I didn't realise it's been done, according to this listener, it's been done to the detriment of the respite beds. We'll, we'll, I tell you what, we'll, I'll get John Paul to get a request in to Clon Hospital about that because I, we were led to believe by Minister Jim Daly because it was Jim announced those step-down beds at Clon Hospital and I remember asking him, does this mean that there will be less respite beds? And he said, absolutely not, that these are going to be separate beds to respite. So we'll put, we'll put a request in to the HSE to find out about that because this healthcare worker says that they, they have a patient, obviously they're offering, they're doing home care package with a patient who's been waiting three months for an emergency respite bed and they can't uh, get it. The home care worker says they're also talking about building a hospital in Cork. Um, a new hospital in Cork that under the staff to cover the existing hospitals let alone build a new one. Okay, leave that with us and we'll get on to the HSE and try and get clarification uh, on that. 1850-333-103 Lines are open. John Paul, taking your calls. Text our WhatsApp 0862 103 I need to do the competition. I don't know if John Paul is ready for the competition. 
not. He's not. He's talking on the phone. Let's do this first. The C103 Cork Diary. With Cork County Council. Supporting businesses. Supporting communities. Serving Cork. Visit corkcoco.ie. The Archbishop Transfusion Service Board, they're holding a donor clinic. That's in Dunamore Community Centre. And that is on today between 5pm and 8.30. Monster Bingo is going to be held in the Parkway Hotel in Dunamway. That's on tonight. Half eight. It's a native local community. Doors open at eight. Great prizes. You please ask to support. Mallow Flower and Garden Club are hosting Betty Holden for their gala Christmas demonstration. Tonight it starts at eight in Karagoon GAA Complex. Admission 15 euro includes mulled wine, tea and coffee with proceeds going to support local uh, charities. For my Widows Association, they've got a meeting tomorrow night, Wednesday at 8.15. All Widows are welcome. Special guest Marion Roach, who's also going to give a flower, floral demonstration. And the Carberry Group are hosting the 2018 Agri-Tech Day in Skibbereen Community School this Thursday from 9.30am to 4pm. Tickets are available on Eventbrite or at your local AIB branch. Court Today with Breedhaven Nursing Home Mallow. It's family run so your loved one will feel at home. See breedhaven.ie C103 Okay, Panto time of the year again. Oh yes it is. Uh, we're inviting you to join the Panto Gang at the Everyman for a magical night Cork's favourite traditional pantomime Cinderella it opens in the Everyman on the 1st of December and we have tickets to a very special event on December the 13th which includes a VIP reception from 6 with face painters and magicians selection boxes and lots lots more we're also throwing in Son of a Bun on McCurtain Street in Cork we're inviting you to enjoy the best burger in Ireland with a 50 euro voucher for a family of four so to win a family pass Here's today's question. Hello, boys and girls. We're Germaline and Chlorine, Cinderella's identical twin sisters. Who shall go to Prince Charming's ball this Christmas? Go on, have a guess. She has very long hair. And lives in a tall tower. OK, who's Germaline and Chlorine? talking about uh, today. Get dialing 1850-333-103 and caller 10 with the correct answer uh, will win today's family pass along with the voucher for Son of a Bun. And you can check out more about the Panto this year by going to the everymancork.com Now, that this has got to be a first. We're looking for people who cannot sing to take part in a zero commitment choir especially for people who can't sing. The organiser of the ABBA Sing Along Social, one for West Cork, one in Cork City, is uh, Aoife McElwain, uh, who joins me this afternoon. Good afternoon to you, Aoife. Hello, Patricia. Uh, How are you? I'm very well. I'm surprised to read that you are a singing enthusiast yourself, but you're actually looking for people who are tone deaf. Well, um, that's exactly right. So I do love singing, but I've never really been very good at it. And, you know, I'm the kind of person maybe who didn't have time to commit to a full-time choir, and um, but always loved the power of loads of people singing together. So a couple of years ago, I set up the Sing Along Social, which, as you said, is a zero-commitment choir designed for people who can't sing. So it's kind of like group karaoke. There's no microphones, no putting anyone on the spot. Um, it's just basically about getting together with a bunch of friends and strangers and caterwauling along to your favourite songs. And I suppose it's designed for extroverts and introverts alike. Uh, so that's kind of the 
that's kind of the idea. Yeah, so, and, so and, and based on the theory that everybody loves to warble a tune, whether you're <laughs> not perfect or not. Like, let's be honest, we all love to belt out a song. Yeah, and you know what? It's always amazing to me. Like, if you have 10 of the worst singers in a room together and they all sing along, it sounds amazing. Like, you just can't, <laughs> like it's amazing. You just can't hear that individually they kind of suck but together they sound magical it's it's kind of an amazing thing so and are the nights incredible fun yeah so basically um i i just i am an absolute pop music fiend i love it to bits and uh as a friend said to me recently pop music is kind of among the best type of self-care that you can do for yourself is to listen to a really fun song and just dance and sing along to it without any inhibitions or anything. So um, I work with a couple of people um, who I call my crack mechanics. So our job is to loosen everybody up and we're in the we're in the business of crack, I suppose, is what I'm trying to say. And um, we also give away prizes to the best, worst singers and the most enthusiastic dancers. So um, it's not a night that you need... Uh, a lot of Dutch courage for anything like that. It's literally turn up with your pals and uh, and have a bit just, of fun. Yeah, and it is and it is an ABBA. It's all ABBA, yeah. and we all know and love the ABBA tunes. So that's that yeah. makes it easier. You are going to be in Connolly's of Lep on. Is it this? Uh, it's this, this Saturday, Saturday. This Saturday, yeah, this and then Saturday. Cypress Avenue when tomorrow week, Wednesday week. That's it exactly. So um, the uh, the show in Connolly's of Lep is very nearly sold out. It's going to be such a fun night. Um, it's such an iconic venue. And yeah, have you been? Have you been to Connolly's of Lep? I mean, they're noted for their music. Yes, exactly. Yeah. So, so they're so good. Um, I mean, I don't know if they would be super associated with ABBA and easy pop music, but they're, no, they're, <laughs> they are. They're very excited about it as well. And uh, I think that's the amazing thing about ABBA, actually, because they're, um, what I've noticed uh, at the ABBA gigs that I've done in the Roche in Dublin, Galway, and in the Sugar Club in Dublin, just around the country generally, it's the most, um, I guess, uh, common denominator. It actually sounds kind of insulting, but like just the amount of uh, different types of people that just adore ABBA. So we're talking age 17 to 70. It's amazing, the power of them, I suppose, with the films that, that came out recently. Um, yeah, you know, and look at the success of the Mamma Mia uh, movies yeah. there. I mean, it was based on, the, it certainly wasn't based on, on some of the singing and Pierce Brosnan <laughs> being one typical example. OK, listen, Aoife, we wish you good luck with both of them. Connolly's of Lep this Saturday and then uh, Cypress Avenue uh, yeah. Wednesday week. And thank yeah, you for that. Thank you. Yes, Thanks. and people can find out all the details of tickets and where to get everything. Um, basically, the best place to look is probably Facebook forward slash Sing Along Social or through the Cypress Avenue or Connolly's Lep websites and social media. Okay, good luck with it, Aoife, and thanks Thank for joining so us. Bye bye, Aoife uh, McElwain of the Sing Along Social, and she's got a great website as well, singalongsocial.com. Uh, okay, you can stop calling us on our Everyman Prize because what's the answer? The answer is Rapunzel. Rapunzel.
Thank you, Germaline and Chlorine. They'll be back with us tomorrow with another question. And Noreen Corcoran of Cookstown, congratulations, Noreen. You were called at 10. You've won the family pass to see Cinderella at the Everyman, Thursday the 13th of December, half past seven. Be there at six, though, for the VIP reception, plus a 50 euro voucher for Son of a Bun. And thanks to our good friends at everymancork.com. Noreen Corcoran, Crookstown, our winner today. We'll do it all over again tomorrow. This is the Cork Today replay on C103. Joe Heffernan uh, joining us on this Tuesday afternoon. Good afternoon to you, Joe. Good afternoon. And we are continuing to discuss advice for people when it comes to bereavement following the death by suicide. And today we're moving it on to children and how you talk to children. Now, I mean, talking to children about any kind of bereavement is tricky, but it's got to be, there's an extra layer, is there, when it comes to death by suicide? There is. There's there's all the thing of like, no, it depends on the age, like, but um, how will I put this? What will I say? How much will I tell them about? Uh, but uh, I suppose the three words that we need to have in our heads are, you know, to be, uh, to, to talk to them in a way that is sensitive and loving and truthful. Um, because the 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 natural inclination of any parent is to protect the children from uh, distress, um, and yet <clears throat> it's better that a child hears from a, a parent or loved one uh, in this sensitive, loving, and truthful way uh, than in maybe some. Uh, inappropriate way um, or some other child in the playground something who's, like yeah. that I was listening to an interview with Olive Foley Axel yeah. Foley's uh, widow who was uh, and obviously um, no Axel's death wasn't by suicide but Axel's death was very sudden very tragic and very sudden and obviously it happened in Paris and she was at home with the kids and she didn't know her instinct was bundle the kids off to granny and get them out of it and get them away from it. And she rang David Coleman, the psychologist, and said, I need advice. I don't know what to do. And he said, keep the boys at the heart of it. Yeah. Bring them to Paris with you. Yeah. You know, hide nothing from them. You know, you use, and you know, you use age appropriate words with some of the kids, kids were young. But he even said, you know, be careful about the, the words you use, like, you don't use passing, for example. You use death. You yeah. It's that, that you use words like like dead and and that because if you say things like um, uh, gone to sleep or yeah. gone away or you know uh, we lost granddad kind of thing, um, you know children take things very literally and they can imagine all sorts of um, uh, scenarios from phrases like that. Like, is he lost in the woods or uh, a thing like that? Um, on that same interview, I happened to hear too, um, uh, Sister Helen from the um, Child Bereavement Organization in Limerick was there. Well, you do you know her? No, no. I, I have had a few exchanged emails. Yeah, um, she sounds she sounds amazing, an amazing person. Yeah. Um, uh, but uh, they do a lot of, you know, she's actually a qualified play therapist. So she would use a lot of sort of what we'll call hands-on ways uh, with children. 
um, that they mightn't have the vocabulary to express what it is they're feeling. But um, one, one, I think it was a little boy um, uh, with a bereavement. Um, he, he, he painted or drew a hat and he put a line down the middle of it. And he said that uh, when he when he talked about his little drawing, he said like his 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 heart was b- broken or split, mm. and you know it, it, the opportunity would be there to say how does that feel? How does a split heart feel? And in in their own way, then like that, a child will be able to um, you know. To process what's going on in in her in 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 her or his or her own way, um, there was a book I saw. <coughs> I think it's an activity book anyway, and it includes advice from other kids about how to navigate um, the grief after a suicide. It's called After a Suicide: A Workbook for Grieving Kids. It's the Doggy Centre Australia. I, I and uh, I'm 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 going to um, uh, email them and and try and get a copy of that. Another one that I saw was, but I didn't say goodbye for parents and professionals helping child suicide uh, survivors by a person called Barbara Rubel R U B E L. Um, now I love the word workbook. Because um, kids, you know, are used to kind of drawing and colouring and painting, and they may well be able to express uh, feelings uh, that Through they might have to yeah. work for. You know, I mean, because that's the one thing, everything obviously is has got to be age appropriate. If you're dealing with a five year old, it's very different to a 10 year old to a a 15 year old. Um, And the let the children talk. Yeah, um, to have to to pick a good time uh, to pick um, like whether the sitting room or whatever, but somewhere where there won't be an interruption, um, you know, that somebody isn't due in. <clears throat> or a visitor due in like quarter of an hour to make sure that you know that that, that there will be no interruption and um uh, to um to speak to the child as we were saying in that sensitive way and you know to maybe explain that a person was very very upset and and very unhappy um and uh, you know that uh, maybe to say to a child something like, um, you know, when you get a tummy upset, and they might say, yeah, and you know that you could say, well, there's also a mind upset uh, that we can be sick um, in our mind as well as in our tummy, and um, and that sometimes when that happens, that a person feels that they can't continue with life and um you know like what 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 does that mean it it means that um that all of the things like our, our heart beating and that we need to have a meal and that we um go to bed and get up that this doesn't happen that a person's body is no longer working um and 
uh, I obviously know I'm I'm referring to a very young child. And, um, and also be prepared to repeat the story. You might get asked about it over and over, over again. Over and over. Yeah. You might have to say the same things over and over and maybe get asked the same questions over and over. And that's fine. And another thing that one might do would be to mention maybe a couple of names of uh, a favourite aunt or a favourite uncle or a favourite cousin, um, you know, that uh, may- maybe when you want to talk a little bit about this too, that you could talk to with, um, and then to name a few names, um, you know, that uh, they might... Uh, just have a slightly different slant but the main thing is the child needs to feel secure needs to feel safe so that's the reason like that as uh, the, the, that the talk should be truthful um, without being graphic it yeah, can be yeah. truthful um, so that they don't find out afterwards that gee that that's not what mammy or daddy said or whoever said. And um, and then they lose trust and then they feel insecure. And then they start imagining things maybe in 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 a in a, in a scary way and and uh, a lot of that can be uh, avoided. Um you know, so they they need reassurance and support, not alone in the days after the event, but days, weeks, months, um as they go through their their own grieving, yeah, and um, to make process, sure they they know, you know? that that uh, yeah. somebody's there, um, yeah. and the person to tell the child, particularly the initial news, you suggest a parent, ideally. I think a parent yeah. would be the ideal person, um, if that's just not possible. Someone who has a loving relationship with the child and who is. Uh, sensitive and able to um, uh, to speak in a in 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 an age appropriate way, um, you know, the, the, so that the child can un- understand um, what, what they're hearing, um, and definitely a close family member is the best, um, and very possibly. Um, uh, a parent um, where, where that's possible. And keep in contact with your school. Schools are fantastic. That's very important. Yeah. It's like you said earlier there um, uh, of how things can go askew like another child in the playground. And um, to to inform the, the school uh, so that when the child goes back that they understand that there is a situation um, uh, that they need to be aware of and uh, to understand, I mean, for example, with adolescence, um, you know, there could be a big drop in the school performance. There could be anger. There could be acting out. There could be arguments. And um, when uh, a school, when the staff in a school uh, know what's after happening, well, then they can make allowances for a change behaviour, say, from an adolescent. Absolutely. Okay. In, in the little talk with the child as well, that there can be, you know, um, family photos, memories, and all of that. And then, of course, you come to the funeral, and just like you were saying there, that um, David had told... Um, 
Olive, uh, Olive Foley to keep um, them at the centre of it which she did them part and, of the, the thing and she I, very much did I'm over on time Joe. Okay. I'm clock watching thank you for that we'll chat again next Tuesday uh, that is uh, Joe Heffernan who runs counselling practice in Bohabui his number is 029-766-17 and my apologies we're, we're way over on time today uh, my thanks to John Paul McNamara who produced Nick Richards is with you for the afternoon we're back with you tomorrow morning at uh, 10 o'clock until then I'm Patricia Messenger uh, enjoy the rest of your Tuesday Court Today with Breedhaven Nursing Home Mallow it's family run so your loved one will feel at home see breedhaven.ie C103 Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince Quince has all the jet setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway like European linen premium luggage options buttery soft Italian leather bags and so much more and it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. When it comes to your finances, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, and you've invested all that you can. Now it's time to take those investments to the next level by using the brand behind every great investor, Yahoo Finance. As America's number one finance destination, Yahoo Finance has everything you need, whether you're a seasoned trader or just dipping your toes into the market. Join the millions of investors who trust Yahoo Finance to guide them on their financial journey. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com.